Let us get into our passage. The counterfeit king. Judges chapter 8. Begin reading in verse 29. Jeroboam, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. His concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son. And he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Aphra of the Abiezrites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal berate their God. The people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. Now Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all seventy sons of Jeroboam rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said, He is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal-berit, which, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah, killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together and all Beth Milo, and they went and they made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, given to us in love for our good. I've said before that the book of Judges can be summarized by decline, defeat, and deliverance. But in this passage, there is no deliverance. In fact, this passage is a case study in defeat and decline. Gideon has died, and Israel is in a no-man's land, having no leader, no spiritual, judicial, or executive compass to guide her. Friends, the passage that we've just read is depravity run amok. When men are left to their own devices, this is what the sociocultural, political realm devolves to. Conspiracies, jockeying, manipulation, duplicity, and in this case, 
all the way down to sanctioned fratricide. Common grace is the sovereign grace of God extended to fallen creatures without regard to their election. One aspect of common grace is how God restrains the evil of fallen men across the earth. And I believe this is expressed in individuals with the conscience and in society with government and civil laws. This is what comes to fore in the period of judges. They were a civil office who subverted chaos and restrained order while enforcing the penalty of the law. The problem we see with civil operation of common grace is that you have fallen, fallible creatures administering it. Some administer it well, others not so much. Further, the laws which they administer can range in their justness. Because of this, civil governance is limited in the good that it can do. And worse, it can be co-opted by expressions of depravity. The Lord has ordained civil authority and government for the purpose of impeding chaos and societal disarray. But when depravity co-ops common grace in government, undermining it, this is exactly when we see the chaos and anarchy, disarray in society that common grace was meant to prevent. And we read of this here. Because judges were not prophetic, priestly, or kingly in their office, in the story of Abimelech, we see most clearly how depravity can co-opt common grace in its socio-political expression and completely undermine the purpose of common good for its own benefit. You see, friends, Abimelech was not a judge. His story is really an extension of Gideon's story and how the missteps of one generation can set the stage for the chaos in another. How depravity will always seek to undermine and co-opt common grace. What we will see in Abimelech is an anti-judge, a counterfeit, neither chosen nor prepared by God, but the antithesis of what a civil leader looks like. Our passage picks up at the end of Gideon's life, telling us that he went back to his own home in his ancestral tribal region before going on to his eternal reward. The scripture is keen to point out that he left behind 70 sons. One son born of a concubine in a different city, Shechem. And that the name of the son born of the concubine was Abimelech. It would seem that no sooner than Gideon was cold and in the ground, Israel apostatized yet again, making Baal Berit their god. The text further reads that for all Gideon had done for the people, freeing them from the oppressed hand of the Midianites, they did not show any kindness to his family. The people forgot God, 
They forgot his deliverance, and they forgot his deliverer. The story of Abimelech was included, included to serve as a cautionary tale. And even though the candor and tone of the narrative is brutally harsh, it serves a purpose. It informs God's people and what a leader is not. See, friends, the conditions that existed in the period contemporary to the text still exist today. The human condition has not changed. And there are still expressions of depravity attempting to undermine the common grace expression of civil authority. We shall look at this passage examining how common grace can be co-opted by depravity under three headings. First, the opportunity. Second, the opportunist. Third, the occurrence. This leads us to our first heading. Chapter 8, verse 29. Jeroboam, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Ophrah of the Abiezrites. Verse 33. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Barit their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. The phrase, nature abhors a vacuum, has been attributed to Aristotle, and it expresses the idea that empty or unfulfilled spaces are unnatural. They go against the law of physics. Any absence will soon be filled by someone or something, and here we see that Gideon's death creates a leadership vacuum. There was no passing of the torch like we see in other places. From Moses to Joshua. From Joshua to Caleb. Or from Elijah to Elisha. In fact, we could say that the opportunity for the gains made during Gideon's judgeship to be undermined was initiated by Gideon himself. First, in his family life, and second, in the corrupted worship and religious instability of Israel. Though Gideon was not a king, he adopted a regal lifestyle for himself. He amassed great wealth, and fathered 70 sons. Not only did Gideon take many wives and father many children, but he also kept a concubine. Now this simply could have been for political reasons to form an allegiance with the people of Shechem. 
But he did not make this woman his wife, but rather he kept her as a concubine. This would have catastrophic implications. A concubine was a woman conjugally united to a man in a relation inferior to that of a wife. Such a woman would not have been betrothed or wedded with the solemnities and ceremonies usual upon marriage, and she, and she could be dismissed without a bill of divorcement. She had no fair, no share in the family government, and her children were not entitled to inherit with the children of a wife. So Gideon reaped all the benefits of having side woman while his concubine bore all of the burden. From this arrangement a son was born whom Gideon named Abimelech. Well that's how we say it in Texas. That's not how a Hebrew would pronounce it. Avimelech. Av, father. Avi, my father. Melech, king. Literally translated, my father is king. Now, Moses gave strict warnings about such things. We read in Deuteronomy 17 where he writes, When you come to the land that, that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. And you shall not acquire many wives for yourself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Second, we read where Gideon built a golden ephod that in itself became an object of worship. Mind you, Gideon was only a judge. But we see him here intruding into offices that he had not been called to. Gideon had been called to be a judge, a civil authority. But he acted like a king, taking many wives, and he intruded into the office of a priest, making an ephod. Friends, there's a difference between anointing and ability. One may be able to do something that does not mean that they've been anointed to do it. Just because you are able to do something does not mean that you've been anointed to do it. Intruding into an office you are not called to is the same ignorance, presumption, and arrogance that tainted Gideon's judgeship. There's a reason offices are separate and no single person other than Christ is capable of fulfilling them all. A deacon should be able to teach, but he is not a teaching elder. A ruling elder likewise. Nor is a teaching elder a ruling elder or a deacon. They're different offices with different functions, fit for different people with different giftings. Someone functioning in an office they're not called to is a recipe for disaster. We do what God has called us to do. No more, no less. And with Gideon not respecting his calling, this will prove to have 
far-reaching implications. And though he did so with the best intentions, what he does is set a dangerous precedent. So let us take a step back and get the full picture. Gideon is a judge who behaves like a king and infringes on the offices of, of the office of a priest. In this, he has 70 sons. And on top of that, he takes a concubine as well. What would seem to be innocent missteps are actually setting a wicked exemplar and paving the way for something far more sinister and ruthless than he could imagine. Now the, te the text does not explicitly say it, but I believe there is an implied bitterness from the concubine that passed into Abimelech. She has a relationship with a man who could have been king, yet she reaps nothing of his presumed nobility. Further, she bears him a son who has no portion with those born of his wives. And then Gideon names this child son of the king. He gave him nothing but a name and that a cruel joke. Insult upon injury is borne by the concubine and her son their entire lives. The scriptures shed light on how the bitterness of a mother can taint the son. We read in 2 Chronicles 22 that Athaliah, queen regent of Israel and daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, was hungry to consolidate power. Under her influence, her husband even murdered six of his own brothers to ascend the throne. Upon his death, their son Ahaziah was to rule. And in spite of all the kingly counselors and advisors, he dismissed them all and he listened to his mother. The text reads that she was her son's counselor to do wickedly. There is an inestimable influence mothers have on their sons. And hell hath no fury, they say. By acting like a king and taking many wives and a concubine, what he does is ensure that he alienates both mothers and children from receiving the nurturing love of a father. At such a high level, the one thing that a king must have is a secure home, free from strife. We've seen the disastrous results when the king's own home is in turmoil. And this is why God forbade many wives. Nothing but trouble ever follows. Friends, the God-fearing home is the one place where we absolutely keep all of our eggs in one basket. So Gideon dies, and as soon as he dies, the common grace restraint of his administration completely erodes. The people revert back to idolatry, namely the worship of Baal Berit, the Baal of the covenant. This is particularly, particularly heinous. 
They're ascribing to an idol made with hands the attributes of the Lord. Only the Lord is the God of the covenant. He is the only covenant-keeping God. Not only did they want to forget Gideon, they wanted to forget the Lord as well. Now, this swirling set of converging circumstances is ripe for some extremely crafty person to seize upon and take advantage. There is discontent, far-reaching apostasy, and no moral compass of a judicial successor, one who is prepared and called by God. On June 28, 1914, an 18-year-old student named Gavrilo Princip fired a pistol in Sarajevo, Bosnia. It changed the world. Princip, a Serbian nationalist enraged by the annexation of Bosnia and Herzegovina by the Austro-Hungarian Empire, had assassinated Archduke Franz Ferdinand, presumptive heir to that empire's throne, and his wife, the Duchess of Hohenberg, as they rode in a motorcade. After the assassination, Austria-Hungary declared war in Serbia. Soon, Europe and much of the world spiraled into war as one country after another, enmeshed in a web of previously established alliances, took sides, either with the central powers, Germany, Austria-Hungary, and their allies, or the allied powers, France, Britain, Russia, and others eventually including the United States. This was to become known as World War I, and it would prove to be more devastating than any that had come before. Four imperial dynasties, the Habsburgs of Austria, the Hohenzellers of Germany, the Sultans of the Ottoman Empire, and the Romanovs of Russia collapsed as a direct result of this war. The vacuum that was created would give rise to the likes of Vladimir Lenin and later Adolf Hitler. Nature abhors a vacuum and so does leadership. Friends, what one generation does in moderation, the next will do in excess. In Gideon's generation, the Israelites cleaned up their acts long enough to get the Midianites off their backs. In Abimelech's generation, they've rushed headlong into idolatry. With Gideon, he acted like a king. With Abimelech, he tried to become the king. Where Gideon disregards the Lord's precepts regarding respecting offices, Abimelech completely disregards the Lord altogether. Depravity always finds expressions in common grace. Be mindful of this in the broader culture. What common grace says is that people should be able to live their lives without having their rights violated. Depravity will co-opt those rights and claim that you cannot tell me what I can do so long as I'm not hurting anyone. Except, of course, they're hurting themselves. 
30 years ago, a cultural prerogative became accepting homosexuality. 15 years ago, it was celebrating homosexuality, affirming it like that was the way that God had intended certain people to be. Today, it's about transgender rights for children. Closer to home, what parents do in moderation, their children will do in excess. If you cut corners in your walk with the Lord, don't be surprised when your kids are not interested in church or God at all. Skipping church, fighting with your wife, both publicly and privately, pornography, what will seem to be little missteps will have huge implications. And here in this passage, we see that all the elements are present to give rise to such depravity. Restraint has been completely cast off. There is no leader incoming to suppress the tide. The, the, the tide. This leads us to our next heading, the opportunist. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jeroboam rule over you or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. So apparently Abimelech has been in Afra ostensibly watching in the shadows. As a son born of a concubine, he would have not been a part of any ceremony or the dividing of the inheritance that would have followed Gideon's death. But as opposed to alienating him, what he witnesses in Afra energizes him. The people effectively reverse course in such a manner that none of Gideon's reforms last. And this extends to his posterity. Everything Gideon stood for has been cast aside. Upon witnessing the unrest in Afra, he immediately departs and returns to his hometown of Shechem. Now, this is significant for a couple of reasons. First, the house of Gideon still maintained a certain degree of authority. The first place the people would have looked for a successor would have been among one of his sons. Second, Shechem was a chief city of the Ephraimites. And under Gideon, animosity had arisen through the consideration Manasseh had attained with the rise of one of their own to prominence. Third, Shechem was already in the throes of idolatry by the time Gideon died. It had fallen, and it had fallen big time. Shechem was the same city where Joshua had held a national assembly to renew Israel's covenant with the Lord. We read of this in Joshua 24. In fact, Shechem had fallen so far as to build a temple dedicated to Baal Barit. Though the text offers no indication at all of Abimelech's religious inclination, 
he posits himself as a Shechemite. He's one of them. And he ingratiates himself by making a distinction. He refers to Gideon's legitimate sons as the sons of Jeroboam. If you remember, Jeroboam interpreted means he who contends with Baal. Effectively, what he's saying is, the sons of him who contends with your God are going to rule over you, and they're going to continue his anti-Baal discrimination. So the battle lines are drawn. Abimelech succeeds in escalating the situation from building upon and expanding the pre-existing tribal distrust between Ephraim and Manasseh to framing the issue as a threat to their cultic religious worship. Those worshipers of Yahweh and his golden ephod over in Afra against us followers of Baal, Barit, and Shechem. So he rallies his mother's family. Apparently they were a family of some prominence and he puts a bug in their ears. He suggests that not just one of Gideon's sons would ascend to leadership, but that all 70 could feasibly be named as successors. Now the idea of 70 rulers was daunting. We read earlier in Judges where Gideon had basically taxed the people into providing for the golden ephod. The tax burden of 70 rulers would have been unbearable. What Abimelech suggests is that since he is one of them and he is descended from Gideon, it would be in their best interest for him to be their ruler. Particularly in this time where who that may eventually be was still up in the air. He represents their religious views and he certainly would not tax them the way Gideon's 70 sons would. I'm one of you. I represent your best interests. If you want to protect and maintain your way of life, you need to get behind me. And in such a way, the opportunist seizes his opportunity. Abimelech had no lawful right. He had no just claim and no call of God. But he had ambition and he had opportunity. At the same time, by seeking to be made king, he is walking in direct opposition to his father's proclamation not to make someone a king. Friends, what we've just read is what a case study in what a counterfeit looks like. Someone using whatever the prevailing sentiment is to their advantage. We've seen this before. We see this all the time. We have no clarity on Abimelech's own religious leanings, but we know that he seeks to take advantage of the religious leanings of those whom he attempts to manipulate for his own benefit. 
Though no rule by 70 individuals at once ever existed in Israel's history, he exaggerates the threat and appeals to the fears of the men of Shechem. He positions his 70 half-brothers as possessing the same ambition for rule as he himself does, and he strokes the pre-existing tensions to his own advantage. Friends, this is nothing new. I I, I would almost say that most godless opportunistic leaders are well versed in the story of Abimelech. This leads us to our last heading, the occurrence. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Belberit, which with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubbaal, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbaal, was left for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar of Shechem. Abimelech's conspiracy takes hold and begins to gain speed. He exaggerates the perceived threats of taxation and ending their Baal worship, and he exploits their fears. His kin, moved by Abimelech's claim, then take the proposal to the lords of Shechem. The lords, in turn, convinced Abimelech represents them, move on his behalf. They went into the house of their god and withdrew 70 pieces of silver, one piece of silver for each life that he would take. Blood money, straight out of the temple. Abimelech then marches with his mercenaries to Afra with absolutely no resistance, enters his father's house and slays all of his half-brothers, save one. Now, friends, the question must be asked, how could he do such a thing? I believe the simple answer is that he dehumanized his brothers, reducing them down to mere objects. They were not people. They were obstacles which needed to be removed in order for him to reach his goal. I believe he was taking to the extreme the same objectification he, along with his mother, had experienced by his father, his father's house, and his siblings. His dignity as well as that of his mother's as creatures made in God's image had been taken. Their identities were reduced down to being a concubine and the son of a concubine. They had to bear the burden of being viewed as less than an illegitimate. What Abimelech does is he objectifies them in the way that he had been objectified and he did to them what had been done to him but he takes it a step further. Remember what one generation does in moderation the next will do in the extreme. 
The passage closes with a disgraceful scene. A depraved people crowning a counterfeit king. Friends, what we've just read is the modus operandi of the counterfeit ruler. Not only does he know how to tap into the sentiments of the people, but he reduces his perceived opponents down to mere objects. They will talk about the other like they're not even real people, worthy of dignity of being creatures made in God's image. Now, in Western democracy, we typically don't hire assassins to murder our perceived political opponents. I put a huge asterisk mark right there. We'll leave it at that. But we can dehumanize them and stir up animosity as if they're the enemy we need to be united against at all costs. Friends, objectifying people is not leadership. And allowing others to be objectified in order to protect whatever it is we think that they are a threat to is not a common grace expression. In fact, from the text, that more closely resembles idolatry than the true worship of the Lord. In conclusion, in Gideon, we see a clear expression of common grace leadership. He's reckoned with his own weakness. He is hesitant to assume leadership. He has his flaws, but his desire is for the people. In Abimelech, we see the exact opposite. He doesn't let the Lord work in his weakness, but he seeks rather to exploit the weakness of his perceived enemies. He does not see his perceived enemies as creatures made in the image of God, but as objects and obstacles to attaining his goal. His desire is not for the good of the people, but how he can advance himself. The preservation of order and the common good are not a concern for him, but he embraces anarchy and chaos as tools he can draw upon so long as they serve his purpose. He has no firm religious conviction, but will manipulate whatever the prevailing sentiment is for his own purposes. Now there have been and there will continue to be many counterfeit kings, but we, the redeemed, have a true king. One who does not divide the people, but draws them all to himself. A true king who does not seek to take advantage of anarchy, but dispels anarchy, chaos, bringing peace. A true king who operates in all offices and intrudes on none. A true king whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom that cannot be undermined, usurped, or co-opted. A true king who takes none as a concubine, but extends full rights and privileges of covenant relationship to all that come to him in faith and repentance. A true king who does not reward the guilty for the blood of the innocent, but he was the innocent who gave his blood for the guilty. Let us pray. Father, we give glory and honor to you. We thank you for your word and for the clarity which it brings. David said, the entrance of thy word bringeth light. Father, I pray that this would take root, that we would take heed and beware, and that we would look to you knowing that in a fallen world, common grace and depravity go hand in hand. But Father, you've called us to an eternal kingdom, an everlasting kingdom. 
that cannot be co-opted, it can't be undermined, and whose rulership is not up for a vote. In Jesus' name, amen.